0: Hey, before we start, I want to ask you a favor. If you're a fan of WMFA, will you consider becoming a patron? I know, it's kind of awkward. We so rarely talk about the business of being creative, right? But we should. That's part of what WMFA is all about. And WMFA is a lot of fun to make, but it's also a lot of work, and right now I do it all. Patrons make small monthly contributions that directly help me get that work done, and they get cool stuff in return, like bonus content. Visit www.patreon.com slash WMFA podcast to learn more and sign up. That's P A T R E O N.com slash WMFA podcast. Thanks so much. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and today I'm continuing Appalachia Month with Elizabeth Cat. Elizabeth is a historian and writer based in Staunton, Virginia. She's the author of What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia. And the co editor of 55 Strong Inside the West Virginia Teachers Strike. Her writing has also appeared in Belt Magazine, The Guardian, The Nation, Salon, and The Boston Review. She is the director of PASSEL, a historical consulting company, and an editor for West Virginia University Press. What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia responds to a narrative led by J.D. Vance and his book, Hillbilly Elegy, that has crystallized around Appalachia in the past couple years drawing on convenient stereotypes and dangerous assumptions to paint a broad and misleading portrait of the region. Elizabeth's book dives headfirst into this construction, challenging it with historical insight and fresh perspective. Being an Appalachian in the age of hillbilly elegy is infuriating and exhausting. Please, if you have read Hillbilly Elegy, do me a favor and read what you are getting wrong about Appalachia next. Here, Elizabeth and I talk about the hard work of writing into these often overwhelming emotions. We also talk about sharing vulnerability with readers and getting their vulnerability in return, crafting public academic writing, and the urgency of our current political moment.
1: Like I had legitimate emotions daily writing this book that ranged from like, like volcanic anger to grief to sadness. And once I got it in my head that it was okay to bring those emotions out, then the voice fell into place.
0: about from blog posts originally, right? And were you approached about then developing it?
1: Yeah, so basically the quick story of um, how the book came to be is that um, I had a lot of time on my hands, we had just moved um, to Texas and I hadn't found any um, employment yet. So I started to blog just a little bit about the presidential election and um, kind of the narrative about Appalachia that was forming um, in that context. So this was like kind of like fall. Yeah, it was probably like around October 2016. Um, and so I wrote a little bit and about the election and and also the popularity of Hillbilly Elegy, and um, I happened to connect through that with um Anne Trubeck, who is the uh, founder of Belt Publishing, based in Cleveland, and we had a lot of the same frustrations because um a similar conversation was happening about the Rust Belt and the RNC convention had been. I'd been in Ohio, and you know all those kind of things kind of converged um, into the idea that this could be um, something longer that looked at those election narratives and conversations um, that were really going in what I perceive to be in healthy directions. Yeah,
0: can you maybe just kind of for listeners who maybe aren't as familiar what the sort of major points against hillbilly, like you know, kind of what you see as being problematic in the hillbilly elegy uh, narrative? Yeah, so
1: are, I know that's like
0: the entire book, so I don't want to. But just just for a little bit more context.
1: Yeah, so um, generally, when I talk uh, and share criticisms about *Hillbilly Elegy*, it helps if we're like you know looking at the the title of the book, yeah. which is um, *Hillbilly Elegy: A Memoir of a Family and Culture in Crisis*. And so there's this you know side to the the memoir that's like you know talking about family experiences and using that to kind of um, Place value on, you know, strategies to cope and things like that. Um, and the criticisms that I have, you know, aren't anchored to that, um, you know, mechanism of the book at all. It's this broader uh, memoir of a culture thing mm-hmm. that's going on, which is not something that I knew to <laughs> to exist before um, the book, and I'm happy to say I don't think it sh- should exist, but generally the idea that um, you can extrapolate and attach a narrative to an entire geographic region in Appalachia on the basis of one personal, one person's you know, personal experiences, um, and then it became a decoder for the presidential election and sort of like get inside the mind of the Trump voter, even though it obviously wasn't written from that perspective. Um, and one of the points I make in the book is that this has a long history in Appalachia. Um, we've had, like, you know, who knows what what generation of spokespeople we're up to now. But this is a f- common, common phenomenon. And it's enough of a phenomenon th- for me to be able to say comfortably that um, care should have been taken to avoid this happening again. Um, but that also we are now, like, part of a longer conversation that includes some disturbing things about the ways that people have written about ethnicity and race in Appalachia. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Yeah and and I think that it I think that people don't know, you know, and it, it's really funny. I was just reading on your website uh you, the excerpt that you posted from the talk that you gave at WVU and um I want to I want to pull out a quote that I really loved and ask you about that more in a second, but um it really did say so eloquently, I think this this idea that you know we are people who get told about ourselves a
1: lot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is sort of like one of the quintessential Appalachian experiences in my mind. I don't like to generalize about the culture or the people or even the history, but I think it's fair to say that most people in Appalachia have had the experience of um, somebody, you know, whether it be like reading the comments on an article or a conversation. If you, you know, or somebody who's gone to university with one of your new peers you know just telling you you what you should think and feel about yourself um and it's like i don't know it's it's everywhere within appalachian culture in responses to it if you look for it so so were you necessarily thinking about all of that
0: when you were doing those initial blog posts or was that just kind of you know micro stuff that you were seeing in the moment and reacting to
1: yeah, I think it was. I mean, I think it. I definitely saw it, and it reflected that a little bit in some of the blog posts that I I was writing. Because um, one of you know my uh, other concerns that I had was that journalists were going to places like McDowell County, West Virginia, and other places in, in coal communities, and were kind of doing the whole um, war on poverty yep. narrative. Um, and so, like that was um, the initial kind of. Uh, entry point into talking about this phenomenon historically the idea that uh, in every generation it feels that there are people who come to the region and kind of take images and narratives away and then repackage them and sell them um, for money or to increase their status or some other kind of material gain and that of course as you know um, can bring us into really profound and kind of parallel conversations about the way extraction Works in the region and specifically the coal industry.
0: Absolutely, I. Um, this might have even been two years ago now that Elaine uh, Al- McMillian Sheldon, um, who's a visual artist and filmmaker, yeah. and I um, did this series for Coexist, uh, which is a channel of Fast Company about the post coal economy. And one of the things, you know, so I was writing all of these pieces and. And one of the things that I was really sensitive to in the conversation with my editor, who was fantastic about this, uh, and then, you know, kind of once I brought it up, very proactive about it. But, you know, you, this, this very subtle language, like saying that, like, we quote unquote discovered X, Y, or Z thing, you know, and kind of acting like these things haven't always been happening and haven't always been there. And, and I think that's a really common approach to the area to just say, like, oh, I popped in and validated the existence of all of this stuff by seeing it with my eyes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the phrase that I like overuse most at the moment is, you know, these are not just mistakes, this is a pattern. Yeah. Um and we all have like different ways that we think and feel and respond to that pattern, but um you know, I think after a certain point when that those election narratives have kind of like died down a little bit, mm-hmm. um we're still left with the power that, you know, um Empowered <laughs> those those practices, um, and that's something that's a real thing in our lives and can have particular consequences.
0: Yeah, that's that's the line that I really loved in um, in that talk that I just mentioned, where you you say, um, of course, the book is is titled What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia, and you are describing you know being asked who the you is, and you say I started to see that the you was me, and that I was writing against an experience where people with more power tried to tell me what I should think and feel about my history and identity.
1: Yeah, I think that that is a perspective that has really resonated with a lot of people, but particularly um, younger audiences. Uh, Like, one of the things that's happened to me after writing this book is that I get a tremendous amount of um, mail from people who have either thoughts about my book or Hillbilly Elegy, and usually it's like, these are very painful notes that people send me. I mean, in the sense that they are filled with their pain Mm. um, about this experience. And, um, you know, I would get letters from, you know, one that really stands out is from an older woman whose book club was reading Hillbilly Elegy. And she wanted to say she was originally from West Virginia, but was now living like in the Pacific Northwest. Um, And she wanted to give a counterpoint to that. And she was worried that she would lose friends because everyone, you know, was loving this book. And she was like, I, you know, I'm a senior citizen, and I don't have a lot of opportunities to make friends anymore. Oh my God. Um, and she asked me if I would, you know, come to her book club meeting and just like have her back. Um, and she didn't exactly know where I was located. But those are, you know, those are the kinds of, of letters that I've gotten from people who are just really torn up about a lot of things. And I think what's you know, clear is this this book is like the vehicle for a lot of pain now, but this is like generational pain mm-hmm. that exists in the region. That's attached to a lot of different things. Are you going to like Skype into a book club or anything? <laughs> I, that happened, um, that happened a little while ago. So I, I couldn't, um, Skype into her book club, but I sent her like two advanced copies uh-huh. of my book. It, it hadn't, it wasn't actually out yet, but I sent those to her um, and told her that she was free to, you know, pass them around in her book club, um, just to show that there are, you know, some different perspectives. Yeah.
0: Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's you know a thing that's always stuck with me. This is Elaine again, actually. I remember just like a tweet that she had, I mean, I mean, years ago, maybe. Um, and I don't even know about Appalachia. I think it was just a story. Somebody had said something about storytelling, visual storytelling, and quote, you know, giving people voices. And she, her response to that was like, you know, we didn't give them, they have voices, like we're just lifting up their voices. And, and that idea though, of, of just like, helping people see that their voices are valid is is such a powerful side effect that I, I'm not sure I would have imagined um, was going to happen, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, making people um, feel a little bit more seen Yeah, is like a tremendous honor that I've been able to um, do in the context of, of writing this book and communicating with people. Um, so, you know, when I go, when I travel somewhere, when I talk to people online or when they send me, Emails And it's such, you know, a small act of kindness that you can do for another person, but it's, um, particularly in in our context, the context of people who, um, you know, don't often, they have voices, but they're not as elevated. And so, um, absolutely being able to, to say like, I, I see your experience. It's important to me. Um, is, is just like something that is very overwhelming that, um, I get to do like on a daily basis now.
0: I would be really curious to um, just from my own research, which is 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 often very different. But um, you know, I, I've been since I've been in Detroit, in Detroit looking at the out migration here a lot. Um, and a thing that I've heard people say is that they didn't they kind of didn't know that they were part of something bigger or that they were part of a bigger pattern. Um, are, do you hear anything like that? That people kind of didn't quite know. I mean on On one hand, I feel like that's a really stupid question, because obviously, as Appalachians, we're aware of of the systemic kind of imbalances that are against us and that have been against us for a long time but but th- that real sense of scale, I imagine might be something that not everyone has a has a glimpse at all the time.
1: So I think it's different um, for people who are from the region or have lived in the region a long time versus people who might not really know too much about Appalachia and then kind of read the book and, and respond to it. I think within Apple Appalachia, one of the things that my, um, that people have responded to is, um, the way that I was able to connect sort of the way that people think about poor white people with some of the thought that had been circulating, mm. um, from c- people who are conservative, conservative intellectuals, also, um, further back in history, people, um, you know, eugenicists, for example. And so I think that, I think those dots were like 99% connected for a lot of people, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, I helped them with some vocabulary and, um, some patterns that really just like clip things, uh, in place for them. Um, I, you know, (laughs) talking to people outside, outside the region, it's difficult for me to gauge just how much, um, you know, the book is, is resonating for them because, um, you know, you don't. You don't like to ask people like, "Well, do you, you know, do you do you know what you got wrong now?" Right. Um, <laughs> Have I rubbed your nose in it enough? Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, but um, what I I think that, like some of the most valuable conversations I've had are with people of good faith, mm-hmm. um, who work in media and like media adjacent industries, and they've been like completely um, kind and generous with me um and have done you know some reflection with me about the way that uh media narratives are can be potentially damaging for the region and they've you know they've said that they're excited to to do better work in that regard and so that's really kind of great and meaningful and they are seeing like these broad patterns um and will continue to like investigate them more and so that is that's really like oh that is amazing um and I'm grateful that that people uh, were, you know, able to kind of do that reflection with me. Absolutely. This, um,
0: feel free to, to dim me around this question if you prefer not to talk about it. But um, something I think a lot about, and I mean, I'm sure you do too, because I think to to write about a place like this you kind of have to you know i'm always very wary when i'm approached by publications of like what's your what's your coverage been like and what's your angle going to be and and all of that and and i wonder as you've gone through the process of promoting it and all of the kind of auxiliary writing that you've done to do that, which I want to talk about in more detail from the writing perspective too. um, You know, have you, have you kind of grappled with that stuff with editors or just passed on things if it's a place that you didn't feel comfortable, um, you know, didn't feel like they had a good history with engaging with the region?
1: I have had like a remarkably positive experience with the people who have sought me out to work with. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that, um, like the vast majority of people who sought me out to work were women. Mm. Um, and so I think there's a lot of sensitivity to issues about representation and it's, you know, in this context, it's directed towards like a regional representation, but, um, that sensitivity you know, came through like immediately, um, in so many, many contexts, um, there have been a couple of publications who have asked me to write and, um, have said, well, what would you like to write about? And I've said this, or I've said that, and I've had the response, well, like, that's not Appalachian enough. I think like one example was, I wanted to talk about, um, some union organizing that was taking place. We have, um, in in virginia a community that's um, populated heavily with latino um agriculture workers Mm -hmm. and so i wanted to talk about how people were organizing in those communities to kind of um, boost union organization and i was told that's not appalachian enough um (laughs) wow what do you even say to that yeah i i don't i don't know i mean well i said thank you but i don't think this is going to work out yeah um but yeah i mean that was just sort of like i i i don't know you know what is is an Appalachian topic? Um, And so I suppose there's, you know, there's ways that I could have like worked on that person or, Mm -hmm. you know, we could have like come into fellowship um, somehow, but it was, you know, in in my mind at that moment, just to say, just to step back and say, I don't think, you know, I don't think my perspectives can be um, valuable in this context, but generally speaking um, (laughs) people have been tremendously gracious and thoughtful about um, letting me, you know, use their platforms to say, um, things in the way that I want to say them and that it's important for me to say them. Um, I had a fantastic, uh, uh, experience working with The Guardian, for example. I was going to ask you about that too, because I think
0: that, um, even before I saw the piece that you did for them, um, I have thought that their coverage has been really sensitive.
1: Yes. So they have, you know, they have a good track record already of, um, working on these themes. And, uh, I contact, I was contacted by one of their editors, Jessica Reed, who is fantastic. And, um, you know, she basically let me write whatever I I wanted to write. And so that door was like wide open in that context. And we worked together and, you know, kind of shaped what came together. But, um, there was nothing that, you know, they, they told me I had to say or any sort of like. Um, kind of supplication to sort of like what readers would expect in there. So as long as, you know, I could find a, uh, find a way to kind of make my points about Appalachian, my perspective in a way that was, you know, consistent with their, their publication um, and how they, you know, and the voice that they had within that, we were all good. And that's been really, really tremendous. And just like, I'm I'm very grateful for that.
0: Yeah. Cause that's such a difficult question as a writer, kind of balancing you know, because I, I think you're right, the the kind of you know, I think you came to the it sounds like you came to the right conclusion, for instance, with that one publication that you parted ways with, but to say kind of play devil's advocate with yourself and think, okay, well, like maybe I could kind of work from the inside and like contribute something better, but then also as a writer, like your name is still on it at the end of the day. And if it gets mangled and you have a or you know, it comes out and you know that it's not something that you're proud of, like not only has it has it not checked your cultural box, but also it's damaged your reputation as a, as a writer.
1: I think about that a lot. Um, so I am not a, a writer, I'm a historian and my, my, the type of writing that I do, um, is, you know, kind of specific to somebody who doesn't have a training in in journalism, for example. So I'm really, really happy to get coaching Mm. on, uh, for example, writing for different kinds of publications. And people have been uh, really open about helping me with that. At the same time, um, you know, letting letting whatever I could call my voice come through. The more I think the more, like, difficult dilemma for me is when I, I get approached to give, like, quotes and, mm. and blurbs and things like that. Um, and this is, you know, a new world for me in some respects. And you don't always know, like, what your comments are. Uh, in what context they will be placed. So I am like incredibly um, thoughtful, <laughs> but also very anxious about some of that, some of that kind of you know, that media voice that I could potentially have and have had some, you know, at some, sometimes. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do have like a tremendous amount of anxiety generally about being a person who has a somewhat, at the moment, elevated voice about Appalachia given that like the whole purpose of my work is to say that there should not be just one voice, Mm -hmm. um, out there. And it is, you know, required, um, a lot of self-reflection, self-criticism, uh, strategies, um, and things going on in the background to be able to, um, sort of satisfy those concerns. And it's absolutely like an ongoing process that I, I negotiate and renegotiate daily.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and what does that look like for you? If you, if you, care to get any more detail about that? You know, like, is it a, is it a matter of uh, passing the mic sometimes
1: and that kind of thing? Or how does that, how does that look, what does that look like for you? Yeah. So, um, a couple of different strategies that I, I have that are working at the moment is, yeah, I'm absolutely a big fan of mic passing. Um, and it's happened one or two times that people have come back and and said, I don't want the mic passed. Right. Okay. Um, (laughs) and um that's like wow okay um and then but but most times it's like it's really you know they're like great you know there's they're thankful that i can point them to a more appropriate expert than me um and i always like try to point people towards um people who don't often get a voice like women or lgbtq people um when i can sometimes i am forced to sorry force is probably the wrong word sometimes i have to be the voice mm-hmm. um, and if I am paid to do that I try to defer most of that compensation um, to organizations back in the region. That is like a very minor thing that has happened um, but that's just one that's just one strategy for example um, and then I, I have a company that um, kind of happens in the background of what I do but we um, offer pro bono and sliding scale um, Consulting assistants to Appalachian organizations, um, usually that have something to do with history, because that's what I'm trained to do. And so that's a way to kind of offset um, some of the more media centric things that I do. Um, because, you know, um, somebody who's working in a community organization might not even really want to benefit from a media platform, but they can benefit from um, some expertise that we can give them in the background. So those are you know, it's not, not a perfect system by any, any means, but I do, I do try and I try to be sensitive, um, to the things that are happening at the same time. Um, a real dilemma in the work that I do is I don't make a tremendous amount (laughs) of money writing for Apple, you know, writing, uh, about Appalachia. And so I, yeah, I will, you know, have situations where I will just have to, um, you know, put my voice out there because I need, I need work. Um, so yeah, it's complicated, but, um, you know, we're doing, you know, we're doing our best and trying to, in the process, like, be more networked to people who um, are out there writing and and kind of creating in the region. Yeah, I
0: mean, I do really think that's that's all you can do, like, is kind of try different things out and try to always remain intentional and mindful about things and, and, you know, kind of act in a way that you feel good about. Like, it's not going to always be a perfect situation. And sometimes, you know, sometimes they do want your, your blurb and your quote and that's that. And, and then you're like, okay, well, is it me or nothing? Like that's not, that's not going to help anybody
1: either. Yeah. I mean, it is, I mean that those kind of situations don't happen to happen to me often. I'm like, I'm the beneficiary right now of a really, um, Nice sweet spot where I'm, you know, on some radar, but definitely not like a celebrity or anything mm-hmm. crazy like that. So I do, um, still maintain like a whole lot of control over, over what I do. And like the reality is, is that, um, I've gotten very used to being poor. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, I hear a lot of writers say that actually. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm like, I'm comfortable, um, you know, not like, um, doing everything that, that comes my way, um, in order to kind of stabilize my income. So that's, I mean, that's, that's good. That's in my wheelhouse. I know how to, you know, I know how to not get opportunities. So that's fine.
0: So you're, you're kind of an unaffiliated historian, right? I think public
1: historian. Yeah, I'm a public historian. I don't work for, you know, a university or any kind of, um, institution like that. I'm just sort of out there as a historian, and I'm a public historian, and so is my partner. What sent you in that direction? Oh gosh, it was just like an incredible accident in that, um, so I did my undergraduate degrees in Latin and Greek. Oh wow. (laughs) And um, my acceptance letter into like graduate school for Latin and Greek got lost in the mail, Um, and I panicked. And the only um, university that was anywhere close to me that still had like rolling application deadlines happened to be the public history program, um, at a university, like two hours away. And I was like, okay, well I can do this because I don't have any money. Um, you know, coming up, I don't have any income. I don't think I could get a job, you know, like doing Latin out in the world. So let me, let me, you know, see what I can do. And that worked out. Um, and I mean, I, I think it, You know, in retrospect, that was a super, super happy accident because I love um, public history, but I don't have one of those cool, profound, like, this is why I came to the field, um, like, light bulb moments. It was really, it was really out of desperation.
0: And can you just real quick define public history for folks?
1: Yeah, yeah. So public history is. a subdiscipline within the historical profession, and what we like to do is many things, but we try to make historical understanding more accessible to the public, um, and give them opportunities for engaging and learning from and, and using history um, outside formal academic studies or within the classrooms. Um, some people work in museums or historic sites or archives, um, do or digital history. Um, I'm some I'm I'm a kind of historian that tries to make people better understand the work that history does mm. um, politically and when up within memory and things of that nature. and that falls within the wheelhouse of public history as well.
0: Okay. So w- about the time that you started writing these blog posts and, and you know you were in Texas, um, was writing kind of just the way that you got your thoughts out, you know not having a job but having, of course still the, the active public historian muscle working.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Like it was, I was tremendously sad. I have a story that's similar to a lot of people who, um, you know, undertake academic studies. Um, and that I just, um, had a lot of difficulty finding, finding a job and finding an employment that was in my field. And I was, you know, tremendously, tremendously sad about that. And I felt very divorced, um, from something that had meant a lot to me for about 10 years by that point. And so, you know, I had a, um, like a blog that they kind of forced us to make when we were, um, students, Mm -hmm. you know, as a profile kind of thing. And so I just use it to start (laughs) writing really angry things about the election and hillbilly elegy, um, and some, you know, and some people noticed, um, but yeah, you know, absolutely everything that I do, I think is kind of anchored into that training and perspective that, um, I received, you know, doing, doing, um, public history. So what was it like having
0: editors come to you and, and say, you know, do you, did you have any interest in writing a book?
1: No. I mean, well, I think, um, you know, historians often, um, especially those who continue to work in the academy, or like a book is coming. Right. Um, and then we, you know, we write a tremendous amount of book length type things. Um, but no, it never, it never occurred to me that um, sort of writing for the public could be something that, um, I did and Mm -hmm. sort of like the backstory to this is that, um, in the Academy and, you know, online and spaces where academics gather, there's all these like crazy, and I'm sure you know them like hardcore conversations about what it means to be a public intellectual Mm -hmm. and write for the public and all this kind of things. And they're more geared to, um, basically I think academics from really prestigious, institutions um the kind of you know person that you envision when you envision you know the ivy league historian and so so i was aware that these conversations were taking place and i was also aware that i did not fit any of the criteria for the people that were getting elevated um, into into those kinds of opportunities so i yeah my perspective was that um i would be i would probably make some new friends online Um, if I shared some of my work and that I would have people to talk to and I needed people to talk to because I didn't have a job. And so once the
0: idea was kind of out there about doing the book, you know, did you, was that an immediate yes? Did you have any hesitation about it?
1: Um, it was an immediate yes. Um, because a, I knew that I would have the time because I couldn't (laughs) find a job. Um, and, um, the length was already set. It was preset before I even came into the picture. Mm. Cause that's part of, you know, that's determined by the series I was placed into. So I, you know, knew that I had written like that length of work before, so that would be okay. And I knew that I was so angry about this that, um, I could, you know, easily fill that space with things, things that were talking. So yes, um, Ann and I had really great conversations about, you know, the, the, the parameters of what we would produce. And those were, you know, incredibly like, um, helpful and empowering. And so, yeah, I, I just, (laughs) I went forward and, um, you know, what literally what, um, is in the book is, you know, identical to what we drafted up. Oh, wow. That's really helpful just
0: in a, in a workday process too, to know exactly what you're, what you're getting into.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, fantastic to work for Belt um, because I have been an, ac- you know, I've been an academic writer, and usually. Um you get slow feedback, um, nobody helps you with the things that you might need the most help with, which is like mechanical things like, you know, um, manual of style edits or like, you know, being brave enough to say like, I'm not sure actually where, where my commas should go right now. Um, so things like that. And like people were tremendously, um, responsive to helping, um, me not only craft a voice that was specific to, um, their, um, their series, but me, and then this wider, like, you know, um, venue of, of just, you know, writing for, um, a specific kind of regional lit audience, I suppose mm-hmm. is, is, is how to, to determine that. So I got, um, you know, some good mentorship and it was, um, you know, great. We just, we just took off.
0: That's really interesting. The voice thing, cause there are several layers there that then would have been new to you. Do you, it was that a lot of just kind of Writing, getting comments, revising, to kind of find those voice that, that right voice combination of voices.
1: Um, I think I think I was exceptionally um fortunate in a way that the first time that I did this, I did it with a topic that I was so emotionally invested in. Like I had legitimate emotions daily um, writing this book that ranged from like like volcanic anger to grief. To sadness. And once I got it in my head that it was okay to bring those emotions out, then the voice fell into place. Mm. So once I got over, I think a lot of my hangups and sort of and some bad hab, you know, bad habits that were left over from being an academic writer. Sure. You know, things things um things fell into place.
0: Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about the emotional piece because, you know it so happens that that this topic is the same topic that brings up those emotions for me but i think so many writers have their own you know everybody has their own mm-hmm. version of that of those things that that bring up so much and and i just kept thinking as i was reading your book like i don't even know how she got this on the page without just like burning everything down you know and you're and it's so and it's so lucid and clear as well which you know i i know That's a large part of your training as well, I'm sure, but Mm -hmm. um, how you kind of wrestled with that day-to-day of of keeping those feelings. I don't want to say in check because I think you're totally right about working with them and not against them, but um, how that shaped the, the process.
1: Yeah, I probably wrote my book in, in a very unhealthy way. And I'm super interested um, to be put into my place by um, experienced writers because I think they would take me to task over this a lot. But I, I literally sat in a, in a room and just, um, and some days I, I cried for several hours and then managed to write a paragraph and then, you know, cried for several more hours. Or sometimes I couldn't write at all, and I just you know had to go and like walk around the mall mm-hmm. like six or seven times just just to get it out. Um, and all that was of that okay. sounds legit <laughs> like legit writer behavior, by the way. <laughs> that's good. That's good. And of course, like um, I had sort of like the privilege in a, in a weird way of being able to write like that because I didn't have um, you know other other big responsibilities going on. And, you know, I just had to kind of like endure, um, being an unemployed person in okay. Texas. So in that sense, um, the, the emotions were like real in the room with me, like at it, it, every single, every single stage in this, um, the last part in particular was like, I had, um, you know, I was typing through like blurry, like tears the oh. entire time that I wrote it, I wrote it. And you know, like the, like that like the, the thing was, I was, um, I, I finished this book and, um, it came, you know, it came to me in like the ARC and it was so beautiful. And, um, I, I was able to show it to my grandfather and then my grandfather died. Mm. And so I just was like so tremendously, um, grateful that I had that opportunity to like physically hand people that I love mm-hmm. something that I did that was a reflection of the love that I had for them.
0: Mm-hmm. And can you still see, like, you know, can you still look at that at a certain paragraph and be like, oh, yeah, I was weeping when I wrote that?
1: Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because people want to talk to me about those parts. Mm. Um, and they, they're there's some of the parts that people connect most to, which is, which is very, very gratifying. And so um, they've, you know, kind of been vulnerable with their emotions around me um in the in the context of some of those um those parts and we've shared that and that keeps those emotions alive in a very real way
0: i think there's something so kind of magical and fascinating about you know like you'll often in a kind of similar but different vein you'll hear writers say sometimes that um you know maybe when they first write a scene they overexplain it and then they go back and take some of that stuff out, but it's almost like the like negative space of that, like the, like the kind of shadow of what you've taken out is still there, and like it's still having some sort of effect. Uh, and I feel like it's a similar thing, you know, even if, you know, you're not writing that, you're not writing just describing the emotions you're having in that moment, they're still somehow baked in there, and they're still somehow translated.
1: Yeah, that is like, you're on point there, absolutely. It's just like...
0: Words are magic. I don't know.
1: (laughs) Oh no, they are. Like I, I like get chills every day that I get, um, you know, a message from somebody that says like, I read this thing that you wrote and I, I I cried and, um, like I had to, you know, um, I felt it and I'm like, wow, that is, you know, tremendous, tremendous, tremendous. Um, I'm so grateful that I was, you know, all the people that I've connected with, I've been able to do that because I am an introvert. I'm a very introverted person. Mm -hmm. Um, And I am not the kind of person that um, might have necessarily a lot of the conversations that I have been having with people um, unless I had this book. And this book has been a a tremendous like um, it does a lot of work in that it explains to people who I am. Mm -hmm. And so I can feel more comfortable and they can feel more comfortable having, um, you know, conversations and conversations about things that might be painful because, you know, our introversion has been mediated out a little bit by this book. Right, it's like they've met you already in a sense. Yes. Yes, perfect. Yeah, perfectly put.
0: How has that shaped the way that you see what your job is and what you, you know, want to be doing because that must be a pretty profound side effect to to encounter that you are, you know, having such emotional connections with people.
1: Yeah, that is, um, so yeah, that's like a tremendous amount of, of what I'm doing right now is just, um, connecting (laughs) with people. It sounds so, I mean, it sounds a little bit cheesy and a little, and and I don't, I don't mean to sound like smug or anything like that when I say it. Um, but I, I am just so honored that this is, you know, a part of what I get to do and, and just the, the act of listening and the act of like bearing witness to the things that people to want to share with me. Um, and we've able to put um, some projects in place that have, um, in some ways, been uh, facilitated a little bit by by those kind of connections. Like, for example, the West Virginia teacher strike book yeah. um, that we're that we're working on right now. Um, so it translates, you know, into tangible products, and I hope it continues to. I mean, the book has been out, I think, about um, three months now. So hopefully, you know, even more cool collaborative. Things like that will be in the pipeline, um, or people will invite me to, you know, be part of the work that they're doing, and we can find ways to to lift each other up. Yeah, and I think you know, just kind
0: of from the the sort of creative perspective too, it's such a that's what you just said is such a good example of um, this lesson that I feel like I'm constantly trying to force myself to learn is that like you can't, you're kind of like working toward the things you can't even actually imagine happening yet, you know. So so, it's hard to say. Like you know, you you can be on the on the short side of a project, you know, and you think like, well, I mean, I don't even know what would I, what would happen after this. What would I even do after this? I have no other ideas. I don't know, blah, blah blah blah. You know, and and you just kind of put it out there, and it takes on a life of its own, and then all of this kind of momentum gathers around it in ways that you just couldn't have
1: anticipated. Yeah, I mean, the story, the West Virginia teacher strike book, is 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 a really great example of that. Um, uh, a teacher that I know named Jessica Safia, who, um, is an English teacher, um, happened to have a copy of my book with her when she was striking at the Capitol, um, and took a selfie for me of her holding that book. And, um, it was so meaningful. Like that was one of the most like meaningful acts of solidarity yeah. that I've been on the receiving end of in a, in a really long time. And so we sent, um, some copies of the book out to, to teachers in West Virginia. Um, but, but then we started just having the thought, like, well, what if at the next strike or if at the next action or at some point, Jessica or another teacher is holding up a copy copy of their book or someone else is holding up a copy of their book? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so we just like had this um, really, really warm thought about the ways that we can continue um, the work that we do in these connections that we want to have. And so in some respects, maybe those, those – um, circles get squared a little bit faster mm-hmm. because, um, I like to think that, 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 um, eventually I would have overcome my introversion, um, to do work without like needing the platform of the book. But this, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful. I think we all need to do all the work that we can do right now with the most incredible haste, um, just because of the, the political moment that we're in. And so, uh, yeah, anything that helped speed me up, I am very grateful for. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to ask to clarify who the we is there. Yeah, so the we is um, Jessica Safia, who is an uh, English teacher in West Virginia, and Emily Hilliard, who um, is the folklorist for the state of West Virginia. Um, I love Emily. Yeah, yeah. So Jessica is collecting a lot of um, self-reflections and, and essays from teachers. Mm -hmm. in West Virginia who participated in the strike and Emily has like a fantastic visual record of the strike. She went out and did interviews and took images and all that kinds of stuff and it's all going to come together really well I think.
0: This has been such a fascinating experience for me just as an Appalachian because this teacher strike because I remember Mm -hmm. the last strike that I was in first grade the last time that the teachers went on strike Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't know very you know I don't know. I think I just generally didn't know much West Virginia history period and that's probably my own fault. I don't know how much the school system would be blamed for that in particular. Um but I could blame it for some things but not I don't know about that. Um but you know we we are raised with this very you know it's a it's a union state and it's a blue collar state and it's very proud of all of that but I was not really aware of the history of erosion of that and and mm-hmm. then when this happened I kind of remembered a bunch of things from my childhood and and growing up in different lights, just kind of comments that I would hear adults make about, like, oh, well, you know, these teachers get everything. Like, they're so spoiled. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, these just kind of this anti-union sentiment that, like, had become really strong. And and to sort of relearn all of that as an adult and put it in a historical context, and certainly, like, a current historical context, has been a huge lesson for me.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, as a historian, like, I am um, over the moon to hear... um comments like yours, um, because I think, you know, one of the reasons that that occurred for you and and people like you is probably because there was like a strategic attempt by people who are powerful in West Virginia to kind of edit that history away. Mm. Um, and so any, any moment that we have to kind of collectively rebuild our memories, um, is just, you know, tremendously important to me. I want to
0: jump on a thing that you just said about writing whatever we need to write as fast as we can because of the urgency of the moment. Mm -hmm. And how does that play out for you? Do you you think that the urgency and the kind of deep thinking coexist easily together?
1: I think so. Um, And again, this is, um, as a historian and someone who's done historical training, I think that um, that prepared me to Uh do um, those kinds of tasks. And so I I think that, um, I had good preparation for doing that. For example, um, the next book that I'm going to do, um, is, is a history of the eugenics movement Mm. in Virginia. Um, and it's, you know, tangentially connected to some of the issues that I raised, um, in the first book, but also eugenic thought is back, um, Mm -hmm. in our Mm -hmm. current political, political moment. And so, um, that was definitely one of the motivations that I took for, you know, deciding what I was going to write about next that I'm in a position at the moment, um, where I can generate work very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I can help put another brick in the wall, um, between the conversations that people are having that are very, very disturbing. Um, and you know, the people who might be impacted with them. And I do that by um, exploring commonalities in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, But there, you know, there's a wide variety of ways that people, people can do that. And what is
0: that writing process like for you in terms of, you know, I talk to a lot of fiction writers and research is maybe not quite as strong a component, but, but when, when do you start writing and kind of how, how much of a, skeleton do you have when you start writing?
1: I, I'm a very, I'm a, a very undisciplined writer. And so I usually do not have anything before I actually sit down, uh-huh. um, to write. I'm a big rewrite, you know, I do a lot of rewriting. Um, and so that's the way that I help, you know, myself work through ideas. So usually, um, and this is something that just you know the process that I had when I was doing more straightforward history uh, is do a lot of research and then sit down to write and however it comes on the page is how it how it comes on the page and I am like incredibly fortunate even though that um, I don't you know have any kind of like academic affiliations um, that I still have a circle of people who will um, graciously read my work. Mm. And tell me um, if I'm like off base or make suggestions for me or just give me kind of like um, a mini feedback session about some of my ideas. And that is really, really helpful um, that I have like the, that that scholarly community that's still out there um, for me that I can work with. And at that point, have you done most of
0: the research that you're going to call on in the work?
1: Not always, but often. Um, I I. I will usually have been um, assured that I have at least um, done my due due diligence for most of um, the research Mm -hmm. that um, I will need, but also be open-minded about the potential that I would have to do more. Right, right, okay.
0: And uh, the eugenics project, was that something that you had been thinking about already, or or did that kind of come out of conversations with, with your editors and that sort of thing?
1: No, I had, I had the thought, um, there's, there's a couple of sections in mm-hmm. my, uh, my first book where yeah. I talk about the eugenics movement. Um, and I was, I was not satisfied that I had to leave those conversations. Mm. Um, I was, I was happy with that, with what I, I wrote, but I thought that there were, you know, really important things that were, le- that had to be left unsaid, um, particularly, in the way that like the eugenics movement and, you know, the dispossession of people from land went hand in hand, um, with one another. And I happen to have li- to live now, um, in a place that has one of the premier Virginia eugenics institutions. Like I can kind of see it from my house. Wow. Yeah. And, um, you know, I am aware that within my community, the memories of that site, um, and the legacy of that site is not something that, um, you know, is discussed. Yeah. And I mean, anything, any kind of history or, or knowledge or memory that you have, there's, there's always going to be keepers of that memory. But um, I think that also I'm, I'm a pretty good judge of when something is at the precipice of being um, for, forgotten. And um, I feel this moment with this this institution down the street from me. And I also am <laughs> very alarmed by, you know, the, um, the renewal of ideas that I think are, are based on eugenics thought that are kind of attached to, um, our politics at the moment. And so the combination of all those things came together. And I, I just, um, and kept asking me what, um, what my next book would be. And we kept talking about ideas, but in the background, I kept having like really angry Twitter conversations about this eugenics institution that's, um, at the foot of my hill. And so I was like, and I think I just, you know, this has to be the book. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, you know, that sounds great to us. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> we shall see.
0: That's such a good lesson. The um, and and it's it's so counterintuitive at first that you would need to find out what you're actually interested in. Like that, you would need to kind of trick yourself into realizing, like, oh, I think I, I can I can kind of consciously write out these ideas for you. But it turns out that everything that it, like my id on Twitter is actually like. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, that is a very modern thing. I think that a lot of us, I mean, I totally uh, get it. I don't yeah. mean it in
0: a derogatory way. No, oh. no, no.
1: I get it. I get it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was trying to like have some really kind of like cool and fancy ideas about, you know, um, different, different directions that I could go to keep writing about Appalachia. But the thing that like was really consuming me was this one particular thing, um, that I kept like, trying to bother people in my town about or write about mm-hmm. on Twitter. And I, I don't know why I never thought that I could make it the book, except that um, I was, you know, so consumed that it, it just didn't seem to have a, a broader place. Um, and like kind of the reflective thought that you have to do, I think, or that you should do when you're kind of making decisions about these things.
0: Right. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of too, <laughs> too deep in it. And then I love that idea too of using, of kind of revisiting work, that you've, that you've finished and looking and seeing, like, where, where do you actually still see strings that you want to keep pulling?
1: Mm, Absolutely. I mean, I, I just have, like, you know, I have some articles and, and the one publication, but definitely like that is, you know, very important to me to not leave things unsaid. Do you consider writing, like, part of your business now? Do you know what I mean? Is it, is it supporting you in that way now? Or do you want it to? That's like such a, yeah, that's such an interesting question because, um, I am finding that it is hard for me because I I wrote about a people that I am part of and a region that I live. It is very hard for me to separate my writing from everything else that I do. Um, and so it is not, you know, my writing is not like economically stable. I, I'm not like day job, um, quit your day job kind of at the level. And so I need to kind of still have that compartmentalization out there Mm -hmm. because you know, it facilitates me earning income. Um, But I think you know I am super excited at the prospect that I could collapse um, everything a little bit more, and I don't know how that would look. Um, But you know I believe very strongly that um, these connections that I'm making with people should be put to good work, Um, and it's important to me to to you know to be able to not not um, get so far into writing that I'm not helping, you know, I'm, for, I'm forgetting, don't have the time to help people too. That it just all seems so exciting to me. It's like you,
0: um, you know, I don't know why it strikes me, probably just because it's not my work, but it just strikes me <laughs> as like more of like this invention, like, oh, you just you your career is just like this, this really exciting, multifaceted, open-ended thing right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm very, very excited about it, and I'm especially excited about it because I um, had such such a rotten time, um, you know, trying to be um, the historian or, 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 you know, person that I was trained to be, mm. um, and that comes with a lot of, you know, a lot of um, kind of limitations, both that both are set in good faith, but also kind of like the peculiarities and hierarchies within academia that I was very much a person who was shaped to do a particular thing and I could not do it. Um, and I suffered greatly and and intensely because of that, not just financially, but as you know, as losing an element of my identity. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are having those kind of feelings right now. Um, and those experiences so to be able to salvage um something of you know a career doing what i want to do like i i i would be over the moon if that happened so your
0: kind of day to day now is a mix of of writing and and your consulting
1: I don't actually get to write at the moment. Um, I have a lot of people who um, are contacting me to do various things um, that I'm so happy to do. But it's, it's things like Skype into people's classes mm. and, um, you know, help their students or to, um, you know, serve on a board for an organization, things of that nature. So I have um, actually, actually been like overwhelmed with those kinds of um, tasks. Since the book has come out. The very and... public part of the public historian. <laughs> yes. Exactly. That's so well put. Um, yeah, the public part of public history is overwhelming me at the moment. And just talking and you know, talking to people, it takes a lot of a lot of time. Um And I a think lot it... of energy for an introvert. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. Thank you for, um, thank you. (laughs) I, as
0: someone, I mean, I know I do have a podcast and maybe that's a silly thing to say, but I do very much feel like I kind of just like extroverted introvert and I definitely have like refraction periods for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, um, it's so, it's so rewarding, but also challenging to do that. And so, um, I'm trying to focus on that and then I'm trying to focus on kind of helping this, um, strike book be born into the world because we would very much like for it to be released in July. Right. So I don't know, like as someone who went from, um, doing like kind of peer reviewed academic work that could have, that could take like almost two years for something you wrote to, to put out to like having an idea for a book, um, in a shared group and then like having it come out, um, like four months later <laughs> <laughs> is like exciting, but also like, wow, this is like, ooh, yeah, um, it's hard work. Um it's hard work and, and everybody involved in that project does like a tremendous amount of hustle in like various ways, shapes or forms for many, many other um, you know, responsibilities they have. So I would like to get to the point where I can write again very, very soon, but I am absolutely not going to neglect um the the kind of position that I have to be somebody that could help drive um, some real change for the region, and whether that's like talking to to students or you know you know um, sitting on a board or helping somebody uh, put up a historic landmark, I'm 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 going to do that, and hopefully that I can um, you know on a base level carve out some kind of economic stability doing that. That would be perfect,
0: right? <laughs> but we'll figure we'll figure, yeah, we'll figure that out. This is a question that I like to ask everybody at the end of our conversations, um, and you can interpret this however you like. What does creative satisfaction look like for you right now?
1: Huh, that is like a fantastic question. So creative um, satisfaction for me at the moment is um, an email from a young woman who said that um, she had been a creative writer for years and one time had an experience where a writing teacher from, the, from a different region corrected the way that she had written some academic dialect um, and that made her mad and stayed with her for a very long time. And she wrote to me and said that um, I helped take that a little bit away from her.
0: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com. And find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBalestier. Writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier LLC. All rights reserved.